We at Inner Picture Stories are delighted to present the IPS t-shirts. T-shirts that change the world. Not only does each t-shirt design tell a story and carry a message of light waiting to be spread in your life and to those around you, but with each purchase, you also get to choose the cause you would like to support where parts of your money will go. The causes that these shirts support vary from the environment to animals to those struggling with mental health issues, suicidal thoughts, loneliness and diseases such as cancer. For further information about the IPS t-shirts and about the good causes you can support, simply go to innerpicturestories.com shirt and take a look at these stunning t-shirts that can change the world. Welcome to the Inner Picture Stories podcast. My name is Jelis Vaas, your host and the founder of Inner Picture Stories, the educational platform on life. I hereby invite you to come on a journey with me. In each episode, we will dive into the life of an inspiring person seeking lessons of wisdom about life and the world we live in. Answers that you can take away and use in your own life. It's true that no one ever said life would be easy, but it's also true that no one ever said you had to do it alone. So get ready and let the journey begin. There's a proverb uh, that says uh, that wisdom is choosing a greater happiness over a lesser one. I think it's easy to choose pleasure over pain, but to choose the greater happiness, the more durable happiness, the long-term happiness in the broadest sense over the shiny objects of this moment, that takes real wisdom. And that's a cultivation over a lifespan. This is episode 021 with Dr. Rick Hansen. A warm welcome everyone to a brand new episode of the IPS podcast. I'm truly glad to have you here. Before I talk about this episode and our guest, Dr. Rick Hansen, I like to take a short minute to express my gratitude to everyone, to you for tuning in to the podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to see so many people enjoying the episodes and the positive feedback we have been receiving. So thank you once again for, for being here. One final thing I would like to say before I introduce our guests. I know many of us are going through a rough and difficult time at the moment due to the coronavirus pandemic. First, I, I truly hope you and your, your loved ones are doing well despite everything that has been happening. Currently, we are putting together here a special episode on the IPS podcast, which we'll be releasing soon. Now, in this special episode, we asked all the guests who have previously appeared on the show one question. What is the one thing that helps you cope with disasters and distressing times such as the coronavirus epidemic happening now? While, you know, this is not an easy time for many of us, nothing is permanent. This epidemic too will eventually pass. And while I know that saying this will not directly make this all go away or make it any easier for you, the fact is that events like this have happened in the past and will continue to happen in the future. What is important to note is that while we cannot always have control over massive events like this, we can take control of ourselves and approach these situations in a healthier way. With that special episode, we at the IPS Project hope that you will gain some insights from various experts in different fields on how they approach distressing times such as the coronavirus epidemic happening now. 
even if you were to listen to this episode in the distant future when we are past this epidemic, the advice shared there can still be of great help. Now, once this episode is out, you will find the link to it in the show notes of this episode because it has to do with the topics we'll be covering here in this podcast interview on well-being and happiness. Having said that, this is a good segue to introduce our guest for this episode, Dr. Rick Hansen. Dr. Rick Hansen is a psychologist and leading expert on positive neuroplasticity. Over the last 30 years, he has taught literally thousands and thousands of people on how to be well. He has been invited to speak at NASA, Stanford, Oxford, and Google. He is also a New York Times bestselling author, having written six books on well-being and happiness, with his latest book being Neurodharma. Now, in the interview, Rick will talk more thoroughly about his new book, but I can already tell you, it is a compelling book, where Rick talks in depth about the seven things the truly happy people have in common, observed over his more than 30 years of experience. In his book, he combines new science and ancient wisdom to come up with practices to strengthen these seven ways. Now, some of the other topics we talk in depth about in the interview are positive psychology, the negativity bias, and of course, happiness and well-being. There is even a guided mindfulness meditation by Dr. Hansen. I would say if you can, why not convert this interview from a passive one into a practical one and participate in the guided meditation exercise so that you can also feel and embody what we will be talking about in this interview. You will notice in the interview when the meditation uh, is about to happen. The last bit I want to mention is that while Rick was super generous with his time, he was on a tight schedule and there were a few questions on neuroplasticity I was not able to ask. However, in the show notes, we will cover thoroughly what neuroplasticity is and how you can voluntarily hardwire your brain for happiness. So do have a look in the show notes to learn even more about the topic of well-being and happiness. There you will also find all the book recommendations, the videos, people that are talked about and anything else that was mentioned in the interview. As always, the show notes can be found in the description of this episode or by going directly to innerpicturestories.com podcast and search for Dr. Rick Hansen. There you can also find all the possible ways to connect with Dr. Rick and uh, check out his work. With that, please enjoy this most fascinating and insightful interview with Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick, a warm welcome here to the IPS podcast. I am extremely honored and excited to have you on the show uh, to talk about some very fascinating topics. Sounds great. So we are currently... (laughs) Facing, as we just uh, before the interview talked already a bit about it, uh, an interesting time with the whole, you know, coronavirus and the effects it's been having literally worldwide on people's lives. I personally think there couldn't have been a, a better time than now to have you on the podcast. Now, before we jump into the topics we'll be covering here in this interview, I was first very curious to ask, while doing research about you to prepare for this interview... I uh, I read in one of your bios that one of your personal interests include rock climbing, which is something yes. I myself am quite fond of. Is uh, is this something you still often do? 
I do it mainly in my imagination. Uh, <laughs> although uh, from time to time, I still go out. I love scrambling uh, cross country, off trail. It's one of my absolute favorite things. Being by myself, actually, because it somehow intensifies the whole experience. Uh, I still do technical climbing. I usually uh, do it with a guide who is better than I am and can go up more interesting routes without me scaring myself to death. And then I'll follow behind them safely. But I love it. Uh, what, what got you actually interested in it? That's a really trippy question. Well, the kind of roots of it is that growing up, I was a shy, quiet, bright kid, very young for grade going through. And I, I felt uh, sort of unwanted and I felt very unathletic because I was so young. And then I joined the Boy Scouts and on our very first camp out, I was probably 10 years old, maybe, maybe 11. We went to a place that's one of my favorites. Uh, if you haven't been there, I highly recommend it on the places to go. Uh, Joshua Tree National Park and in Southern California, stunning, surreal uh, terrain, uh, piles of boulders, hundreds of feet high, just amazing place. And I started crawling around the boulders and suddenly I felt mm, strong, you know, mm. like a man. And and I was athletic and I could do it. And I and it played on my strengths of sort of being determined and, and clever and all the rest of that. And it was a total breakthrough for me. It actually was a shift, paradigm shift of who I felt I was. So I was very drawn to it from the beginning. And then uh, later at the end of college, I met someone who was a climber and he started taking me out and I just loved it. So that's what drew me to it. And all kinds of things about it, including the camaraderie with your partner, yeah. right? You're in gorgeous settings, as you know. Uh, I, I, I just, there's nothing like it actually. There you are 500, meter, 500 meters off the ground, looking around, looking down at birds, the trees below you like green fuzz. Ah, that's great. <laughs> um, this makes me want to go outside now and climb. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, it's in our nature. We're we're apes. We swing through trees, right? right. We climb things. We we move. They're just children love to monkey bars. Yeah, that's same. It's very, it's very true to us. Mm, that makes sense. Now to move to the topics of this interview, you have done some incredible work around well-being and happiness. You have a podcast, Being Well Podcast. You've written multiple best-selling books around these topics. You have a YouTube channel with great content. You've given hundreds of talks. Your work has literally been changing thousands and thousands of people's lives. I'm really curious to ask, because often there is something from the past that gives people this kind of drive to want to make change happen. Where did this driving you come from, Rick, to want to make change around well-being and happiness for other people? Yeah. Well, first, I, I feel touched that you just name all that, and I feel anew the realness. It's uh, easy to be kind of abstract about it. Right. There's something about writing books or teaching or podcasts, everything, where it's like messages in a bottle, right? You make your offering, and then you cast it out in the sea, and kind of who knows where it goes. <laughs> Will it ever land on anyone's island, right? Mm. And you probably feel that way too sometimes. Uh, but to feel the realness, that they really are real people, uh, just a fact in English, I, we recently added it up. I had never done it. And we found that in English, uh, there have been 900,000 copies of my various books. 900,000. Uh, yeah, in English alone, and 29 languages total. And no, and I, I don't mean it as a brag, but as sort of stunned. Like, what? 
you know, so your question is great. Um, it's interesting. I was just actually reading something, a short passage from a Tibetan um, Lama super teacher, uh, Gendron Rinpoche, and just opened a book to look at it. And my eyes came upon this passage about the importance of establishing the intention every morning of being a contribution to others. It doesn't mean leaving yourself behind. You are included among all beings, right, uh, who deserve decency and justice and kindness. Uh, but really, there's that feeling of service. So I think for myself, I've it's been partly in my nature. As a kid, I, I was I was the kid in my family who sort of worried about the well-being of my parents, especially my mother. And, uh, you know, I was an observer, so it, was, it set me on my course as a therapist. But I think deep down, uh, the heart of it for me is that uh, from very early on, I just felt there was a lot of unnecessary unhappiness. Mm. And I didn't understand why, but I, I wanted to do something about it out there and in here. And then in part through privilege, through privilege, my own privilege, being born in a certain time and place, social class, middle class for me in America, but that creates, that opens doors that are not available to many people around the world. And um, in part, as a result of that, just to acknowledge it, I'm able to really, really focus on generosity and service. Uh, I mean, I, I make sure I have my coffee. <laughs> I make sure that the lights stay on in my home, but I'm able to focus more and more on trying to be helpful to people, which is enormously fulfilling. Mm. So there's a lot to cover here around the topics of well-being and happiness. Mm-hmm. I thought it would be a good start to first talk a bit about positive psychology to understand the psychology of happiness and well-being a bit better. So positive psychology is a relatively new subfield of, of psychology. And while this might sound as a very basic question, I still like to ask it so everyone listening uh, has a foundation before we go deeper into everything. Uh, Rick, could you take a short moment to explain and give a broader picture of what positive psychology is and what it is about? Yeah. Um, so to put it in a really sort of geeky way, imagine <laughs> a range from minus 10 to plus 10 with, let's call it zero in the middle. And uh, another way of imagining that is sort of how far underwater is a person and then how far up toward the heavens is a person, let's say. And uh, much of the study of psychology, understandably rested in a medical model, um, has been about moving from minus 10 to zero, <laughs> or maybe plus one, maybe, right? And much as if you go in to see a doctor and you're not in the minus territory, they sort of pat you on the head and say, you're good, get out of here. <laughs> I need to work with someone who's underwater, right? So that's been true. It's also been true that beginning easily 100 years ago with people like uh, Jung, Carl Jung, and then extending further with Wilhelm Reich, and then uh, the humanistic psychologists of uh, Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers, people like that in, in America, and certainly others uh, in that space as well in uh, Europe and around the world, um, there's been a growing interest in, in what's above the waterline, right? What moves from zero even all the way up to 10 in terms of things like peak experiences and so forth. So the study of the um, upper reaches of mental health 
has been easily 100 years old in terms of academic circles. And around the world, culturally, including uh, in the indigenous people, the first people traditions of the world, which for me are very important to include and respect, in the humanities, uh, in the spiritual traditions, the religions of the world, there's been a great interest in what's north of zero, right? <laughs> including what's north of five? Like what is the upper half or quarter or 10th or hundredth of the human possibilities for us all? That's been really longstanding. Then in um, the last 20 years or so, there's been a kind of a rebranding of a lot of that, uh, a reframing of it under the general heading of positive psychology, uh, particularly as a research discipline. And, and um, you know, it's gone from there. But for me, a lot uh, of that is old wine in new bottles. And I think that it's really curious, actually, that uh, the field of clinical psychology or psychology in general, which is extremely interested in the personal history of individuals and how uh, what is happening today is the effect of a lot of preceding causes. And yet the field as a whole tends to be very ahistorical and forgets often uh, what our uh, predecessors uh, in the lineage really had created. And so for me, it's really important to kind of honor that. So in that frame, to give you a super short response, I think positive psychology uh, is a focused interest in the territory of human experience and functioning that uh, is, you know, in the range of, you know, plus two upward uh, and is the territory of resilient well-being, uh, uh, lovingness, uh, gratitude, uh, and increasingly, which is my own focus, particularly when my most recent book and the online programs, the online neurodharma program, uh, is a focus on what the great teachers around the world and also people like Maslow and Jung and, and others have been focused on as really deep, profound uh, background in your consciousness of just contentment, and inner peace and a, and a fundamental resting in love in the core of your being around which could be you're scrambling to solve problems or your son's moving out and you feel sad you're not going to hug him for a while because we're practicing social distancing with him and so forth. That can be around the edges, but in the core of your being, it really is possible to develop this unshakable sense of peace, contentment, and love while dealing with the challenges of life, because peace, contentment, and love make you a lot more resilient. Um, and that unshakable core can be literally hardwired into your own nervous system using the methods that I've that I've developed and, and you're you're talking about. Mm. To to build f uh, further here, so there is a clear purpose for negative emotions. Uh, anger creates the urge to attack, uh, fear the urge yeah. to escape, uh, and disgust the urge to spit out or, you know, to not eat something. Just, you know, to give a few examples. Uh, they help protect us. What, however, is the purpose of positive emotions besides the fact uh, that they make us feel good? Or is that primarily the sole function of positive emotions? Well, that's a 
you're just really great to talk with. Uh, we can, <laughs> we can, I could turn the tables on you because right. clearly you'd have a lot to say, you know. Well, it's a great question, right? And um, uh, P Barbara Fredrickson, uh, academic in America, was one of the very first academics uh, to risk their careers. Uh, Richie Davidson, um, who's a neuroscientist also, uh, in a way put their careers on the line, in Richie's case, uh, to study mindfulness and um, sort of elevated states of consciousness that are available through meditative training, particularly you know deep meditative training, uh, such as occurs with long-term practice. Uh, and so we have Barbara Fredrickson and others who really ask this question, what, what is the, the function? And so my fundamental short answer about it is that uh, for humans, much as for our primate cousins and then our uh, mammalian cousins, clearly, various kinds of positive emotions in a rudimentary form, let's say, in a squirrel, more developed in a gorilla or a chimpanzee, and then very developed in humans, these positive emotions accompany beneficial bodily states uh, in which the body is relatively calm and it can repair and refuel itself. Mm. Uh, I call that the green zone, distinct from the red zone of fight, flight, disgust, and freeze. Uh, we need to be able to go into spikes of red zone stress to escape saber-toothed tigers or to deal with an intense conflict with another person. But Mother Nature's blueprint is that we should only spend a little time in the red zone. Most of the time, uh, her little creatures, except for humans, are hanging out in green. This is why in Robert Sapolsky's wonderful book about stress, he says that, you know, the title is uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And because uh, they're not hanging out in the red zone, but we're hanging out a lot in the red zone because we have this capacity to imagine the terrible things that could happen or criticize ourselves for the, you know, the past. Uh, we kind of hang out a lot in the pink zone. That's not really good for us. So number one, positive emotions accompany really useful, beneficial bodily states of being that protect us and in which we repair and refuel ourselves and as a result, maintain physical health or increase the odds at least of maintaining physical health and extending the lifespan. That's a really bottom line survival kind of function, number one. Number two, Positive emotions motivate us. They motivate us. Yes, we can motivate, be motivated by withdrawing from pain, but that's pretty primitive, right? Uh, if you get some kind of feedback like, don't do this, it's not very informative, you know, like wrong, because it doesn't tell you what's right. Positive emotions focus us on what's right, right? What helps us feel grateful? What helps us feel connected and loving and fulfilled with others? What helps us feel a sense of calm strength? So they they motivate us. And then I'll just say one more function uh, that's noted around positive emotions, they draw us together. Mm. Uh, when people are experiencing negative emotions, that can draw them together, like they feel disgusted together against some bad, dirty others. And that vulnerability in us has been played upon throughout history and is currently being played upon by authoritarians of various stripes to kind of fuel us against them rivalries and gain wealth and power uh, with their particular subgroup, right? We've seen that forever. All right, people can bond around fear or a sense of, you know, uh, disgust at some kind of contamination uh, coming at you on the one hand. But most of the time we join with others with positive emotion. We uh, delight in our sports team. 
having a victory together. We go rock climbing together and right. we're both really jazzed about what we're doing, right? <laughs> or you have a family. I mean, the, the root so much of our evolutionary neuropsychology is grounded initially in the mother uh, child, especially mother, baby, mother, infant, mother, mother, child bond, and then the father, mother, and child bond, and then the tribe, you know, father, mother, uh, child bond, right? It kind of starts there and then it expands out and we get joined together uh, in who we love. Uh, my wife and I just were talking earlier today about how when we see pictures of our son, woo, 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 <laughs> who's 32 now, big burly, you know, athletic guy. We look at these pictures of him when he was six years old and go, Whoa, and it kind of joins my wife and me together. So those are some of the major functions of positive emotions. Oh, and I could also talk about this in a meditative way. Maybe we'll get into that. But uh, just one thing in contemplative practice that's also really true to flag for people is that it helps to steady the mind to be rested in a basic sense of well-being in your core around which certainly other things can flow. And then as you intensify these positive experiences of of contentment and happiness and tranquility and even bliss uh, or, or the, the warm-hearted versions of those, like deep experiences of compassion and kindness, that does neurologically cool things inside your brain that really help you deepen your meditative absorption. Has, has positive psychology um, actually over the last few years discovered anything really surprising or are we mainly like discovering things we already knew and if that doesn't immediately bring something to mind uh, is there maybe something surprising you've come to learn new in recent years about uh, the good life and positive emotions i appreciate that frame because the truth is most of what academics so-called discover was already well known in informal ways, uh, including in the contemplative traditions or just common sense. And I think that doesn't discredit academia. I deeply, deeply respect the social sciences, for example, nested in the broader uh, context, really, of, of science altogether and scholarship even more broadly. I mean, I totally respect that. Wow, thank you. All of them, right? On the one hand. On the other hand, um, routinely you'll see some study, you know, posted uh, on the New York Times with great fanfare. And when you actually look at it, it reminds you of what you already kind of knew or honestly, a lot of the problem in the way that psychological research or social science research broadly is presented is that it reduces all kinds of individual differences into a single average. Right. And then it says going forward, well, people X or women Y or men usually. Right. And the truth is that's accurate if you are speaking of water molecules, right? Two atoms of hydrogen, one of oxygen. They're all the same, but people are really, really different. And so you'll see these findings that that make this statement uh, that uh, X is bigger than Y. Well, actually, on average, X is bigger than Y, right? On average, let's say, uh, there is a finding that women use more words on average in a day than men do orally, at least in you know America. All right, but what does that actually mean? The truth is that there are all kinds of guys who speak more words in a day than many, many women, right? And the average difference also is fairly small and trivial. And yet that 
example, gets reduced to, oh, women talk more than men, which is a really problematic uh, assertion to make as a generalization because it's a slippery slope into then dismissing what women have to say, right? So I think we got to be kind of careful about all this stuff. So all that said, um, in terms of recent findings, I think one of the things that's been really telling is the highlighting, I guess, is the way I would put it. Not so much the discovery, but the highlighting of the negativity bias, the tendency, which you kind of imply a little bit ago, that um, we have brains that, for survival purposes, are designed to uh, overreact to negative and overremember negative uh, just to get through um, you know, Jurassic Park <laughs> or the Stone Age and live to see the sunrise. So we have a brain, as I say, that's like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. And uh, there's, you know, the research that has really, really pulled that together and highlighted it, including for people like Daniel Kahneman, the, the psychologist who got a Nobel Prize in economics for his work on loss aversion, that we react more typically to avoiding loss than to uh, capturing an equivalent gain. And um, that's been, I think, a, a big find. I think that's really true. Um, I'll, I'll just stop right there. I think that's the one thing that's really stood out for me, not so much as a discovery, but a highlighting and in a very useful one. Mm. Since you mentioned the negative uh, negativity bias, could you take uh, maybe a quick second to explain to listeners what that is? Yeah. Well, we all kind of know what it's like from the inside out. Say you have a job review, a performance review, and your boss gives you 10 kinds of feedback and nine of them are positive and one of them is room for improvement. Well, that's the one you think about for the rest of the day or yep. complain about to your partner that night, right? Or, or my boss doesn't understand me. Or um, you have interactions, let's say, with uh, your partner or a friend and nine of them are positive and one is kind of irritating. Well, what's the one you review as you fall asleep and are still thinking about when you wake up the next morning? Uh, so that's our nature. We're like that. Why are we like that? Uh, the key idea here is that our ancestors over 600 million years during the evolution of the nervous system needed both to get carrots and avoid sticks. Carrots like food, sticks like predators. All right. The difference is if you don't get a carrot today, you'll have a chance at one tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid stick today, including aggression from others like the alphas in your primate band or in your human tribe, if you fail to avoid that stick today, whack, no more carrots forever. Um, sticks have more urgency and impact typically for survival purposes or these days if something bad is happening, I'm using the word bad pragmatically, not morally, if something bad is happening in a relationship or a situation, like a, an alarm starts going off, you got to drop everything to deal with it. Uh, there you are in your home, like we have a dishwasher uh, and uh, a plastic spoon fell on the heating coil of the dishwasher and melted. So there's this horrible smell of burning plastic in our kitchen. Well, Everything stops while we figure out where's that coming from? What do we need to do, right? So there's an urgency there. And the problem is that this strategy is really good back in the Serengeti Plains, or it's the negativity bias is really useful if you're trying to work in a war zone or you grow up in what feels like a war zone. Yeah. But for most of us, it's like a it's like a feature that's now a bug in the underlying machinery. 
uh, we overreact to the negative and we underreact to the positive. We overlearn from what's bad and we underlearn from what's good. You know, we're good at learning what's from what's bad. We're bad at learning from what's good, even though learning from what's good, learning from experiences that are usually emotionally positive of the psychological resources we want to grow inside ourselves, like calm strength or gratitude or loving connection with others, uh, sense of secure attachment to others, for example, those are good things to grow in ourselves and they feel good. One of the functions of positive emotions broadly is to mark and motivate the experiences that are good for us, which are the first step of growing good inner strengths, good psychological resources inside ourselves. So it's it's kind of unfortunate, you know, bad. We're, we're bad at learning from the good. We're good at learning from the bad. And the takeaway from that for me is to recognize what is a problem, recognize injustice, recognize suffering, recognize threats, deal with things. There you are. You're climbing, right? To go back to that metaphor, you're climbing. You know, be aware of how far above your protection you are or whether a storm is coming in or whether your partner's being sloppy in their safety procedures. You know, recognize those things on the one hand, but on the other hand, try not to marinate in them. Try not to reinforce that irritation or anxiety or, or feelings of inadequacy because the brain is really vulnerable to that. And meanwhile, Grow the inner strengths inside that help you cope with challenges outside yourself or inside yourself without going into the red zone. Like with rock climbing, you can be in challenging situations, but because you've got resources inside, including your skills and your attitudes and your self-awareness, you don't need to freak out, right? And then over time also really, 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 in addition to growing specific resources by, you know, helping the neurons that are firing together to actually wire together to leave those residues behind. In addition to that, a key takeaway is when you have these authentic moments throughout your day, when, ah, you just kind of have a chance to settle in the green zone, ah, just a moment of ease, a moment of reassurance, like with you, I'm having a lot of fun here. Just there's a fellowship with you here. Just, ah, it's not more than what it is, but it's not less than what it is. Take it in. So then you gradually um, build up this underlying uh, sense of well-being that you carry with you increasingly. And it's because it's uh, internalized, because it's literally hardwired into your nervous system. You develop more of a positive mood, a sense of resilient well-being as your underlying core of being. It becomes increasingly unconditional because it doesn't depend on, on external conditions anymore since you've grown it inside yourself over time. All right. We're definitely going to touch uh, on some things that you were talking about, like some uh, well-being practices uh, later in the interview. Yeah. Uh, but that was well explained. Uh, thanks for clarifying that. So much in your work as your, your books like uh, Buddha's Brain and your new book, Neurodharma, which we'll talk more about soon, uh, you combine ancient practices and modern neuroscience together, which I find very fascinating. Why the combination of these two worlds and what got you interested in combining them together in your work? Yeah, that's great. So the word Dharma is from India, you know, and it's just a simple word. It's not a religious word inherently. It just simply means essentially the way it is, the truth of things. And science as well is about the way it is, the truth of things. I believe the deep root of the word science from, I guess, Latin, maybe Greek, is to know. And in much the same way, the root, in effect, of the meaning of Dharma is 
to know, to know the way it is. So we have these two ways of knowing. We have um, the development of science initially sort of in the West, and then now obviously it's a worldwide phenomenon that uh, tries to understand the way it is. Then we have we could say the wisdom traditions around the world, uh, not just in the East, certainly in the West, and certainly also the first people uh, around the world, these wisdom traditions. So when you bring two ways of knowing together, you they have synergies. They strengthen each other, and you can move back and forth. And so in my book, uh, I really explore the latest science about how we can know ourselves uh, objectively, in a sense, from outside in, what's actually going on in the brain when we're dropped into the green zone or when uh, you are in a real good place interacting with another person and not that bothered by, let's say, stuff they might do. Uh, you can let it go by. What's going on in the brain? What's going on in the brain when people feel deeply peaceful or deeply all right or just like, oh, my gosh, I'm so I feel like I'm home, home inside my own heart. What's going on, right, in the body? And it's not just the brain. The brain's kind of the primary physical basis for our moment-to-moment -moment experiences. So I focus on it, and there's been a lot of interesting research on it, which doesn't, for me, mean we should leave out the rest of the body. It's just a place of focusing there. So we can know ourselves in that scientific way. We can also know ourselves in this uh, profoundly inside-out way, drawing on the wisdom traditions around the world, um, and learn from people who've deeply, deeply practiced, right? Who've been uh, observing the underlying processes of their own minds with penetrating, laser-like, disciplined clarity, uh, like explorers going out into uncharted territory and then coming back and telling the rest of us about it, right? So when you bring those two together, it's wonderful. Sparks fly, it's fascinating. So useful because you can kind of move back and forth between these two ways of knowing yourself uh, in really practical ways. Like, for example, if you know, as I said quickly a little while ago, if you happen to know neurologically that uh, emotionally positive experiences, the sense of reward, the sense of enjoyability increases dopamine activity in your brain. And as dopamine activity increases, it tends to function as a kind of gate that protects what you're focusing on and doesn't let us be distracted, right? Well, that, then you go, oh, that's how the machinery works. That tells me whether uh, I'm in a boring meeting at, in the afternoon at work and feeling sleepy while my boss drones on. Uh, it tells me that if I just focus on something that's emotionally rewarding, thinking of things that make me feel happy, imagining my boss wearing a clown suit, it just makes me you know, happy, <laughs> whatever it might be, I'm going to be able to pay attention better in much the same way in my meditation. If I open to and I don't push away, uh, you know, I allow and I kind of uh, receive into myself the deliciousness of peacefulness or lovingness or calm or contentment or a sense of gratitude. Um, that's going to help me meditate better. Well, when you know that, then you're more motivated to do those things, for example. So that's the neurodharma territory, the intersection of these two incredibly useful ways of understanding ourselves and helping ourselves. Love that. That's really good. Now, you've written multiple best-selling books around happiness and well-being, which for everyone listening, those books can be found in the show notes. May 5th, you have a new book coming out, Neurodharma. 
And yes. first of all, Rick, just I want to say a big congrats on the new book. While I haven't written any books myself yet, uh, I have some really good friends of mine who have, and the amount of dedication, energy, and time that it takes to write one is admirable. So again, a big congrats on finishing it. Yeah, thank you. Could you tell listeners a bit about your new book, Neurodharma, Rick? And what inspired you to write it? And how is it different from your other books? Yeah. Um, so it's my sixth book, number six, sixth. which is kind of mind-blowing. I wow. know. I, I sort of... <laughs> it's kind of sounds totally dumb, but it's like I hadn't realized I'd written six books. You know, I sort of went... I knew I'd written them. <laughs> they're, all, they're all my children, right? I yeah. have not forgotten any of my children. Uh, but uh, like, wow, you know, so uh, it's a culmination book for me. It's a book that is uh, very inviting for people who are new to any kind of personal growth, any kind of personal practice. You know, it's very accessible. It's warm. Uh, it's grounded in science. So it's very solid, right? You can really have confidence in it. In the back of the book are, I think, something like 800 reference notes uh, for, you know, they really support what it is. But it's there in the fine print in the back uh, for those who have an interest in that. Um, so it's a, it's a culmination book for me. So it's accessible to beginners, you know, in a way people new to practice, but it's really a, emphasizing intermediate to advanced practice. So in terms of that kind of dumb scale, minus 10 to plus 10, it's very much about, uh, plus six, plus seven, eight, nine, and even 10. What in the world might be going on? in the brain and the body when people are hanging out in nine and 10 levels of what is actually possible for human beings to experience in terms of being as contented and peaceful and happy and wise and strong and loving as a human being can really stably be, right? So that's what that book really explores. It's a straight shot. You know, if you imagine uh, the territory of personal experience as like we can move from the swamps uh, to the dusty plains, to the lower foothills, then the lower mountains, and then all the way up to the highest peaks, right? And I think it's really important to keep the Mount Everest, you know, the highest possibilities of human consciousness, keep them in view, right? We may not get all the way, but it's a path with heart, as Jack Kornfield puts it. It's, it's, it's a path in which the next step is worth taking, wherever we are. And what is the next step? So for me, if you think of the mountain of awakening as a broad metaphor, there are many roots up that mountain. There's the Jewish tradition. There's the secular mindfulness tradition. There's the shamanic tradition, let's say, and, you know, the... Lakota people in northern Northern America. Um, there are all these different traditions, right? All these different roots uh, up the the mountain of full human development. But on each of those roots, we find the same seven steps taken again and again and again. We find the same seven qualities cultivated and developed in people again and again and again and perfected as people approach the summit. So the book is about those seven ways of being, which we develop through practicing them. And increasingly, they become uh, woven into the fabric of our being and they become who we are. So I'll go through them kind of quickly here. Yeah. We can all have a taste of them. And then over time with practice, they really get perfected. So steadying the mind, that's a practice. You got to have a steady mind, mindfulness, concentration, deeper states of meditative absorption, steadying the mind. 
And how can we do that? Drawing on what we know about the brain. It's a super practical book and it's very experiential. It's got tons of guided practices in it. And for those who want, a great companion is the online program, which uh, was pulled together from a retreat I taught over 10 days that we videotaped and did all kinds of good stuff with that has tons of guided meditations in it. So, Sorry, one second. Uh, the online program, how is it called? Oh, thank you. It's called Neurodharma. Also, it's the online program. People can find it on my website. It's very affordable. And if people have significant financial need, we love giving out scholarships. So that's the online program. It's a great companion to the book. The two go together really well. So steadying your mind, number one. Number two, warming your heart. Great. Compassion, kindness, uh, being able to... Uh, interact with others with courage and assertiveness as appropriate without letting hatred invade yourself and poison you. So warming the heart. How do we do that? How do we develop that? Third, I call it resting in fullness. It's a way of talking about equanimity, emotional balance and resilience. It's a sense of the peace, contentment and love I've been talking about uh, woven into us so that we're less uh, caught up in craving which the Buddha identified a long time ago as a primary source of our suffering. For the wisdom aspect of the book, I draw on the wisdom tradition I'm most trained in and familiar with, the original teachings of the Buddha, which are highly psychological. They're not airy-fairy. They're not particularly mystical. They're really down and dirty or in a, down and good, right, in a really straightforward way. So I draw upon that. It's, it very much respects that tradition and then explores how we might really ground uh, spiritual practice, deep practice, uh, even Buddhist practice, how we might actually really ground that in the living body and really take the body into account as an underlying cause and condition of this moment of consciousness. Nobody needs to be a Buddhist to get value from the book. Um, I'm, just, I'm just using that wisdom tradition as a kind of guidebook for the route that we happen to be taking uh, up the mountain of awakening. So, so we had the first three, steadiness, lovingness, fullness. They kind of hang together. We can all get a feeling of, oh, yeah, that's, that's what it's like uh, in a really good moment or a really good day or a really good uh, time in my life. I really was rested in that sense of steadiness, lovingness, and fullness. And then the next three also sort of cluster together, wholeness, nowness, and allness. So a sense of being whole, being um, whole as a person, undivided internally, accepting yourself completely, and coming to a kind of first of three sorts of non-dualness. The first sort is non-dual experience in which you have a sense of your mind altogether as a single unified uh, gestalt uh, with wove, woven into it awareness itself. So sense of being whole. And then nowness is how do we actually be here now? How do we actually draw upon the power of now continuously with a brain that's very drawn into the future and the past, right? It's hard for the brain to sort of rest in the present, unlike our near cousins, right, who are really in the now. A dog is really in the now. Uh, a chimpanzee is really in the now. Humans struggle to stay in the now. Um, it's helpful to plan the future. It's helpful to analyze the past, but we can get trapped there. So how do you actually receive nowness? So you feel like you're hanging out at the front edge of now in the kind of the front edge of the windshield of consciousness as time streams through you, right? Or as we move through time, nowness. And then allness, that's the second kind of non-duality where there's a sense of boundary softening between body and world, between self and other. Uh, there's a releasing of the contraction of I, 
me and mine, that starts falling away, less possessiveness, less taking things personally, less identification with passing conditions, opening into allness, right? Whee! And then the final practice is finding timelessness. And that's where I do explore the possibility of what actually might transcend ordinary reality. Uh, if someone uh, wants to focus on the sense of timelessness or unconditionality, what is unconditioned within ordinary reality, such as uh, disengaging from conditioned uh, habits and opening into what feels like effectively unconditioned spaciousness, uh, effectively unconditioned field of awareness through which conditioned experiences can flow. That's really great, but I'm really interested actually in what the Buddha and others have spoken to uh, or spoken about as what may well lie beyond ordinary reality and how we can practice within the ordinary Big Bang universe, which is full of wild and crazy stuff, right? Black holes, quantum entanglements, and planet Earth, wood, right? You know, a cockroach, a butterfly, a beetle, like what? That's part of the natural, you know, Big Bang universe. And still, maybe, there is a fundamental transcendental uh, timelessness, field of possibility, and perhaps even consciousness and benevolence that uh, is sort of the ground, as it were, of ordinary Big Bang reality. So that's what the book explores in a way that's very experiential and practical. Mm, sounds really good. <laughs> so I loved the material in it. I was just <laughs> marinating in the coolest <laughs> science, the deepest wisdom, and then the application of it, you know, the bringing it together in ways that would be really useful for people. So it really had a big effect on me. I mean, honestly, uh, it was such a privilege to be able to to just, as I said, marinate in that material and, and feel it kind of infusing me. All right. So here, this next question might uh, continue on what you, you were just saying now. Uh, so from out of these seven ways you found the truly happy and fulfilled people have in common, which one was either for you while working on this book or which one do you think in general most people would find surprising? Hmm. Well, I think, yeah, I think the uh, material on wholeness, nowness, and allness um, will be the most surprising for people. The material on steadiness, full, uh, lovingness, and fullness, uh, it's fairly, it's been described by others. Uh, I really get to the heart of it uh, in the, those three chapters in very practical ways. But the science, the neuroscience uh, about what's going on in your brain when you uh, stop mental time traveling is called when you stop being preoccupied with the future or the past, really come into the present uh, and uh, drop into, in effect, being in which doing occurs. Uh, if you think about it, I bet you have this experience, too. Uh, it is possible to do things with an underlying sense of being, but it's really hard to have a hold on to the sense of being uh, if the context is lots of doing, right? So uh, it's it's kind of wild to appreciate what's going on in the brain when we're dropped in like that. And it's really wild to appreciate how the brain keeps us in the first half second. Like what's like what's going on in the brain when we're abiding in the first half second or so of the emergence of reality? and the experience of reality, that first half second, the leading edge of our experiencing, uh, what actually, uh, what are the circuits, as it were, in the brain that foster 
uh, stability of that kind of radical present moment awareness. And also what's going on in the brain when we really do feel like we're one with everything and the self-referential egocentric perspective just starts dropping out and this what's called allocentric processing perspective starts shining forth. What's actually going on, including in these you know, for many people, life-changing radical experiences of, uh, they're called self-transcendent experiences uh, of oneness with everything that, that like Eckhart Tolle, for example, writes about and other people have, including very like not famous people in which the sense of self just falls away, boom, and the sense of the world shines forth in radiant perfection. What's going on in the brain there? So the book explores science. Um, you know, this is all, this is the frontier. We're learning more every day. I'm, I'm not trying to overstate what's possible, but on the other hand, point to some very plausible ways of connecting the dots that then can be applied in our practices in the inner laboratory of our own experience. And then as you run the experiment, as you run the experiment in your practices, you can observe the results. And um, if you're having profound, sweeping changes in your mind, there must also be profound, fundamental changes in your brain, right? Even if you don't have a personal MRI that can show that, uh, if your mind is changing, your brain must be changing as well, you know, nested into your body and life altogether. So anyway, those are that was the part that was really cutting edge, I think. And then even less, honestly, um, I, re I what I did basically in the chapter on finding timelessness, among other things, is to explore the classic uh, Buddhist description of the, in the original teachings of the Buddha, the early teachings, um, the description of the movement toward nirvana uh, and the transformational power of that. Like why, why, why is the process toward it meditatively described in the way it is uh, in this progression, which I explore in the book? And what I'm trying to do then is operationalize or neurologize that psychological description from 2,500 years ago that points to uh, a cessation. It's called cessation of ordinary conditioned experiences with a life-changing encounter of some kind with what is, as the Buddha described it through negation, unconditioned, deathless, not subject to arising and passing away, therefore distinct from ordinary conditioned reality in some fundamental sense. What? <laughs> you know, so I basically in that chapter on finding timelessness explore in part what's actually happening in the brain, but plausibly. We don't know for sure. But plausibly, uh, what could be happening in the brain in the run-up, as it were, to nirvana, or as it said in the language of Pali, in which the early teachings of the Buddha were primarily written, nibbana. What is happening there? And so that part also, I think people might find really surprising. Mm. To to give listeners a taste, as it's too much to cover here in this interview, as in-depth as you did in the book, could you share with us one practice on how to strengthen one of these seven ways to start creating day-to-day -day inner peace? Wow. Well, yeah, I will. And I'll, I'll do, uh, I'll name one that is surprisingly quick, right? Yeah, perfect. Uh, so, yeah. So, um, basically anyone who's listening and you probably don't do this while you're driving or operating heavy machinery. <laughs> okay. But, that's a warning. Know, <laughs> a little bit, but you, so, 
Um, I'll do it like this. So be aware of one breath from start to finish, inhaling and exhaling. And then be aware of the sensations of breathing on the left side of your body, especially, let's say, in your chest area. Okay. And then sensations on the right side of your body of breathing. And now the feeling of breathing with left and right together. And left and right and front and back together in your torso. So you're feeling your whole torso above your waist as you breathe. And then you can gradually extend your awareness to include your shoulders and neck and head with your torso as you breathe. Sensations in your arms and wrists and hands as you breathe along with everything else, including more and more sensations as in a single whole. including sensations in your back, extending awareness to your legs and feet. It's okay if this is a little challenging at first. Uh, with a little practice, it becomes really quite easy. Gradually getting a sense of your body as a whole as you breathe with many little sensations in it. It can help to have a sense of attention widening and softening and receiving continuously as you abide as a whole body breathing. We've been doing this for just a few minutes, and you might notice that there's something, there's a shift that happens when you're aware of things as a whole, such as your body as a whole. And then to extend it one step further, while Remaining aware of abiding as a whole body breathing. You can open your eyes and be aware of the whole space you're in, perhaps a room, and let your gaze 
move out so that it's horizontal, not looking down, looking out, even looking up to the corners, the upper corners of the room you're in or ceiling. And allowing an awareness of the whole room you're in with your gaze above the horizon line or close to it as you breathe as a whole body. And if you like, this is a little advanced, but probably doable. You might have a sense of consciousness as a whole, the mind as a whole, this experience as a whole, including sensations of the body and a visual sense of the total surround you're in, the space you're in along with thoughts and feelings and anything else occurring in the mind. Sensations of a whole body breathing, seeing the whole room you're in, opening into your mind as a whole and abiding, abiding as the stream of consciousness as a whole in the present. Letting yourself be at peace. Okay. That was... uh, little practice, uh, mm. less, than, less than 10 minutes long. Mm. Uh, and I think it's really useful to protect whatever we've cultivated and not just change channels. So mm-hmm. in each of those three steps, um, the sense of the body as a whole, there's good neurological, good neuroscientific uh, reasons for the value of why it's valuable to have that sense of things as a whole in the body, then moving out in the second step to the sense of the physical environment as a whole moves us into that kind of oneness perspective and we feel less separated when we're aware of the visual field, especially when our gaze moves out toward the horizon. There's good neurology for that. And then last in the third step, the bringing together of the sense of the body as a whole and the visual field, the environment, objectively, that we're in as a whole, and then moving into a non-dual sense of consciousness as a whole, just in the present. There's there's good neuroscience for each one of those three steps, and people might observe just in the laboratory of their own mind that when you take those three steps, which can take less than 10 minutes, you could spend 45 minutes of meditation on them or a whole day actually exploring them. But even just in less than 10 minutes, um, we can we can support 
a, a significant shift in our um, experiencing and our functioning. Uh, and as we make those shifts and then let them kind of sink in again and again, we establish traits of wholeness and nowness and allness. Thank you, first of all, for that life guided meditation session there for me and uh, for everyone listening. I can see now why you said to not do this in the car. <laughs> so yeah. here is a question I wonder about. So I'm not saying people are completely terrible at it, but in general, many struggle with being happy. You know, there's always this extra urge in many that they haven't found true happiness yet. Why are so many constantly on the search for more happiness? And why are so many in a way so bad at simply being happy? And to put this question differently, how come that for some people, the pursuit of happiness remains a lifelong mystery? Wow. Well, uh, as usual, you are really nailing the deep topics. And well, it is a fantastic question. It's so fundamental. Short version, I think they're underlying uh, physiological reasons that are just in the body, they're biological, that make it hard for people to be happy. You know, for example, factors that, you know, make people depressed. You know, the body matters, right? Also, circumstances, if people are running for their lives in a war zone or they're in a refugee camp or they're being discriminated against uh, every day or ever, that's going to affect people's happiness. Uh, if people are trapped in poverty in America, it's sad to say we're in as an aggregate, you know, the wealthiest country that's ever existed uh, as a whole. And yet one in five children nationwide in my country live in poverty. It's terrible. So circumstances affect us. All that said, uh, I think a lot of people uh, in a way don't value well-being. They chase all kinds of shiny objects, uh, partly because they've been trained to do so, in part because that supports a consumer consumption-based economy. But they, you know, they don't make their own well-being a priority. They, they make the well-being of others maybe as, for, as a priority, but they, they leave themselves out. And that's not good for people. Uh, another thing is that people are just not trained. They don't know how to be skillful with their thoughts and feelings, which is ridiculous. I, I don't say this to blame people. I think it's ridiculous in our culture that we don't value social intelligence, emotional intelligence, motivational, attitudinal intelligence, somatic intelligence. Uh, we don't value it very highly uh, and we don't train people in it systematically while we simultaneously heavily train them in all kinds of stuff in as you know young people that they will immediately forget after they take the test. Uh, so that's a reason. And I think another reason is that um, the negativity bias is very powerful. And uh, it is, and then the last thing I'll just say, which is a very important point, and it's been a major focus of my work really in my adulthood, and especially over the last 30 years, is that people don't take in the good. In other words, they will have passing experiences that are beneficial, you know, moments of accomplishment, moments of having fun with their friends, moments of recognizing their own good heart, but they won't internalize those experiences. They will not help those experiences leave lasting traces in their brain. And therefore, there's no uh, uh, durable um, development or acquisition of any kind. And this is the dirty little secret in the helping professions, in psychotherapy, counseling, mindfulness training, and so forth. Uh, many, many people are having nice passing experiences, but as soon as the prompts for those experiences fall away, all right, 
they don't have anything left inside. They have not developed trait mindfulness or trait compassion or trait happiness or trait resilience, for example. So that's another reason. We don't focus enough on the second necessary step of any kind of lasting learning in the broadest sense, any kind of lasting healing, growth, development, uh, acquisition. We ignore that necessary second step of internalization. Um, and we don't, unfortunately, take the extra breath right, or two or three to stay with a beneficial experience, keep those neurons firing. Uh, and you can do other things as well that I teach in my book and, and on my online programs, you know, to really maximize, to, to steepen your personal growth curve as you go through life. There are other things you can do. But the basic is really simple. Feel it for a breath or longer uh, in your body, focusing on what's enjoyable about it. And that will tend to hardwire that experience more into your being. So those are, I think, reasons. Uh, I, I think last people, as I'm sure you agree, uh, chase, uh, they, they chase fool's gold. They chase mm -hmm. the shiny objects that they think will make them happy, piling up possessions, piling up fame, impressing others. Uh, but it's like plastic food that tastes good in the moment, <laughs> but then passes through the body, leaving no nutritional value behind. And I think uh, to finish, uh, there's a proverb uh, that says uh, that wisdom is choosing a greater happiness over a lesser one. I think it's easy to choose pleasure over pain, but to choose the greater happiness the more durable happiness, the long-term happiness in the broadest sense over the shiny objects of this moment, that takes real wisdom. And that's a cultivation over a lifespan. Rick, there are honestly a thousand more questions I still have for you, but to respect your time, I have one final end question that I ask all my guests. But before I do, uh, Rick, what is the best place for listeners to connect with you? Oh, thank you. RickHanson.net. H-A-N-S-O-N. -S uh, you can find all kinds of freely offered resources there. You can also find links to my podcast and uh, my Instagram and Twitter and Pinterest and Facebook, you know, pages and all that good stuff, all those good ways of getting to know someone. Uh, the, but the, I think the simplest thing is just my name, H-A-N-S-O-N.net. And that's where you can find all kinds of resources, most of them completely free. All right, perfect. So for everyone listening, that will all be linked up in the show notes. So the final end question that I have for you, Rick, and you can make it as long or as short as you want, but from everything that you've seen, experienced, lived and learned in your life, what is the one thing you know to be true? Great question. Uh, many things I know to be true. I think the most valuable thing I know to be true is that we can keep learning. In other words, we can keep growing, we can keep healing, we can keep developing things in ourselves to cope with the challenges of our life, to help other people, and to become happier and happier, uh, more at peace inside ourselves. We can keep learning, and that's incredibly hopeful. Whatever's happened in the past, or even whatever the nature of the present is, we can always learn from here. We can always grow and develop from here. And learning how to learn, in effect, is the strength of strengths because it's the one we use to grow the rest of them. It's the superpower of superpowers. If you think back on you know, the comic books we may have read as kids. So I would say the most useful thing, perhaps, that I know to be true is that we can always keep learning. Mm. Rick, thank you so much for the incredible work you do and, and for being a guest here on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. 
Same for me, Ellis. Really a pleasure. And I applaud what you're doing, which is helping so many people. Thank you. Thank you. And hereby, we have arrived at the end of this episode. Many thanks for tuning into the IPS podcast. And I hope you enjoyed it and gained some valuable information that you could use in your life. To find all the resources mentioned in this episode and to connect with Dr. Rick Hansen, check the show notes located in the description of this episode. Or if you can't find it that way, simply go to innerpicturestories.com slash podcast and search for Dr. Rick Hansen. With that, thank you for tuning in to the IPS podcast and for spending time here with me and Dr. Rick Hansen. I wish you nothing but a most pleasant day out there and I hope to have you soon again on another episode, another journey here on the IPS podcast. Until then, this is your host Jelis Vaas signing off.